0: Welcome to the Bridge Builder program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, executive director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference communications manager, Kit Zipiniak. Hey, Kit.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again this week. We hope that you are having a very blessed day. Remember, if you miss us anytime, just catch us online. Go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. We've got about 100 episodes there that you can get caught up on, and make sure to leave us any comments as well.
0: In today's episode, we're talking about medical ethics and how it pertains to COVID-19 and other emerging biomedical questions, and how, as Catholics, we can apply our faith to decisions being made on those issues when it comes to public policy. In our mailbag segment, we answer a question about marijuana and what the church teaches when it comes to policies that regulate its use. And, of course, we want to leave you with some practical tips on how you can start to put your faith into action. In our bricklayer segment, we discuss how you can help create true educational choice for kids throughout Minnesota.
1: And listeners, if you ever have an idea for our bricklayer segment or maybe it's just a question that you have about faith and politics, make sure to send those our way. Send me an email. That email address is show. At mncatholic.org.
0: We're now blessed to be joined on the line by Lewis Brown. Lewis is executive director of Christ Medicus, and he's going to share a little bit more about what Christ Medicus is and its mission. Lewis is a graduate of Michigan State University and received his law degree from Howard University School of Law in Washington, D.C. He served as associate director of the Maryland Catholic Conference. He's worked as a congressional staffer on Capitol Hill for a Catholic pro-life congressman. He's also helped establish the Catholic health care sharing option cmf Crow in 2014 and later served as its director until 2017. In 2017, he received a political appointment and joined the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in Washington, D.C., where he served until 2019. Lewis Brown. Welcome to the Bridge Builder program. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. Great to speak with you today.
0: So a fellow lawyer by training, I hope our listeners don't hold it against us. How did you get interested in focusing on bioethics and healthcare policy?
2: After law school, I had an awakening around the central importance to the right to life as the foundation for all the civil and human rights that we enjoy uh, and seeing that connectivity between Uh, The source of those rights, human dignity and that right to live and all these other rights that I appreciated, uh, particularly that we fought for through the civil rights movement, uh, galvanized my interest in health care, which was already there. But it really increased my interest in health care and the importance of that in protecting that human dignity from conception to natural death.
0: So you really see the right to life movement as a civil rights movement?
2: It very much is a civil rights movement, and it is. It's the nucleus of the civil rights movement. It's the culture of life that we're building. And so these things are so connected. Too often we talk about the right to life, we talk about social justice, but the two are inextricably linked. And if we're going to take an integrated approach as Catholics, we're going to be integrated, we're going to be uh, the same you know, yesterday, today, forever. We want to marry those two, they, and, because the reality is that they are married and move forward in building that civil rights movement, but starting with the right to life. And beyond,
0: How did working for the Federal Department of Health and Human Services alter, change, enhance uh, your perspective about healthcare policy? Did it focus uh, a sense for you what the real challenges and problems were in this thicket of uh, difficult issues?
2: It really enhanced my understanding. Uh, it was also very eye-opening. Uh, being an African-American man, I am very aware of the challenges that communities of color continue to experience. Uh, because of bias, because of historical marginalization in society. And we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. And so those issues around non discrimination and civil rights are very important. And I uh, saw them in a very concrete way when I was at HHS and was blessed to be able to enforce civil rights and non discrimination across the board, including to protect communities of color from unjust discrimination. And so that was a gift to be able to work on that. But I also saw challenges to uh, the dignity of the human person in a very acute sense. We know that there's challenges to the dignity of the human person, the right to life for the unborn, right? We know that well over 50 million, and I think somewhere approaching 60 million unborn children have been murdered in the womb. We know that somewhere around 19 million of those unborn children that have been murdered have been African-American children, and that that number is disproportionate. So we know that reality. But unfortunately, it became very clear to me about 20 months serving HHS, which was a true gift, became very clear to me that not only do we have an abortive mindset, a throwaway culture when it comes to the unborn. But within too much of our healthcare system, we also have a throwaway culture and an abortive mindset towards people who are aged, uh, what we used to call elderly, towards people who are suffering from serious chronic conditions, towards folks that happen to be disabled, and even to people that are materially impoverished and or also happen to be from a minority community, a historically marginalized community of color. And there's a real connectivity. We see that abortive mindset and the reality of abortion and the evil of abortion. But unfortunately, we see that with those that are born as well. In too much of our healthcare system, there's this implicit judgment that if you're not sufficiently productive, if you don't have sufficient quality of life, maybe you don't deserve the same quality of care, the same level of care. And that's a real problem. It hurts the dignity of the human person. It, it infringes upon those patients' civil and human rights. And it's something we have to work on. I was blessed to work on it a bit at HHS and continuing to work on that, God willing, at Christ Medicus.
0: We're speaking with Lewis Brown. He's executive director of Christ Medicus. Lewis, going back to the comment you made about the work you did at HHS enforcing civil rights laws and healthcare care and fighting against biases and the distribution of healthcare resources to marginalized communities. Can you give a couple examples of what that looks like?
2: There's a few issues that are very concrete, at least during my time there. So the first thing that comes to mind is there was a state that had and still has a significant Chicano, Latino, Hispanic population. And some of those folks have limited English proficiency. Uh, At a minimum, English is a second language, and so it's very important that those folks have appropriate translation services. At HHS, we enforce civil rights not only in the healthcare context but in the human services context, such that if a state is providing certain benefits that are funded by the federal government through HHS, we have a certain level of jurisdiction there to make sure that the civil rights the citizens that are receiving those human services are being respected. Americans in our nation have a right to make sure that they're not discriminated against based on their national origin, which includes the ability to access services and benefits, even if they do not speak English, even if they have limited English proficiency. And so what we saw in one particular state is that that state government entity, a particular state government entity within a northeast state, was not sufficiently providing translation services and was impeding access of folks with limited English proficiency, and in particular the Chicano-Latino-Hispanic community in that state, from having meaningful access to those services, we found that it was a likely civil rights violation and entered into, and this, some of this happened after I left, entered in a, in a, into an agreement to bring that state into compliance to make sure that the Chicano-Latino-Hispanic community and other immigrants in that state that have limited English proficiency were not discriminated against effectively because of their national origin and therefore because of their, in some cases, their limited English proficiency. That sounds like a small deal, but when you have hundreds and potentially thousands of people that aren't having appropriate access to human service benefits or... That have really vital aspects of the social safety net cut off to them and are experiencing discrimination in that way, it's a serious problem that really impacts lives. And that's something we have to work on. And it's also unacceptable, Jason, in states where you have a, a significant immigrant population for a state not to be providing meaningful access to those benefits, not translating documents and providing translation services. So it sounds like a small thing, but it's very significant. It's very meaningful in the lives of folks that are working hard but trying to have access to the benefits that we provide as a society.
0: indeed, thanks for thanks for fleshing that out for us and making that concrete and practical and and the real tangible way. you're absolutely correct that if you can't access healthcare care, human services because of language barriers, that can have significant impacts on your life. Can we talk a little bit more, Lewis, about racial disparities in healthcare? That's an increasing conversation today. Sure. What do you think are some of the source of those sources of those disparities?
2: I think racial disparities is is definitely an issue. It's important that we think about this with a Catholic mind, with the mind of Christ, and not with the mind of the world. But I think racial disparities is very much an issue. There's a couple issues here, and some of these things became more clear because of COVID and the public health crisis. But first, in too many parts of the country, whether and particularly I can speak to the African-American community in different parts of the United States, which is not monolithic and which is very diverse. In too many parts of the United States, African Americans don't have sufficient access to medical care, particularly primary care. And the beauty of primary care is that it's access to a primary care, we have a relationship with a doctor who's investing in you and your family's medical care and really your health and wellness among other things that can help increase one's overall quality of life, one's overall health. There's a a level of unequal access to medical care just in general. You see that also to an extent with hospitals. Sometimes you'll have hospitals that are pulling out of kind of impoverished areas because of struggles with making it financially in that community. So you have historical and present-day issues of African-Americans having unequal access to medical care, whether it's primary care or the care that they might get at a hospital in certain parts of the United States. That's an issue. You also have issues around diet and nutrition. By way of example, over the last 10, 15 years, parts of Washington, D.C., where I've lived, parts of Detroit, where I'm from, neighborhoods that have a heavy black population just don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables like they should those things together in addition to pre-existing conditions that African-Americans have in different parts of the United States, it's not all over the place. And again, we're not a monolithic community, but when you have those pre-existing conditions, when you have insufficient access to primary care and other aspects of medical care, and then when there's also that insufficient diet, nutrition for families, for individuals, for communities, for the elderly, and you have something like COVID-19 come around, it makes it very challenging for that community to weather a serious health challenge like COVID-19. And so it's something that needs to be worked on. Some of it's an issue of historical marginalization and bias. Some of it's just an economic issue. And some of it is an access issue. And that's something that we as a country need to work on. It's also a health education issue. We really need to make sure that all communities particularly communities that are materially impoverished, whether they're predominantly white communities that are materially impoverished or predominantly Hispanic and African-American communities that are materially impoverished, but particularly in communities that are a little bit economically less well off, we need to make sure that they have sufficient access to primary care, that they generally have sufficient access to actual medical care, and that we're really educating folks about their health so that they can take responsibility and have the means and the instruments to have better health outcomes in their life and to live a healthier life. We're not doing that right now. We're, we're not providing the quality of care to communities of color, but also to predominantly white communities that are materially impoverished that we should, given the level of wealth that we have in the United States. And it's something we need to work on.
0: Lewis, we talked about the throwaway culture a little bit ago. What are some of the ways in which COVID has accelerated or exacerbated the throwaway culture in your mind?
2: In some parts of the United States, in the early stages of the public health crisis, you saw hospitals or states have guidelines around triage protocols or rationing protocols if A surge in patients happened in that state or at that hospital that really challenged the resources of the hospital or of that state at large. In some cases, those triage protocols, the protocols that were going to be set up for rationing care, if it came to it, showed that there was a mindset that said that it was okay to put people that are aged and elderly a little bit further down the line because of their lack of quality of life, or to deprioritize persons with certain disabilities because they have disabilities. And that's a real issue. We also saw situations where patients and families didn't have sufficient access to their family, where the advocacy of a family, of a community around a patient is really important in the care that a patient receives. My speculation, again, my specu- it's speculation, speculation, but I think too often the level of care that a patient receives in some situations can be very tied to the level of advocacy that a family is providing to the level of presence that a community provides to the patient. And oftentimes when a patient is isolated, when a patient doesn't have the same level of community or family and where there is a nexus with lack of material a lack of economic wherewithal; those patients can be negatively impacted. And so what happens? It tends to be, I think, that too often people that are poor, people that are less well off, do not get the care that they should. That's some of what we saw. It wasn't everywhere. It wasn't in every state. It wasn't in every hospital. But there was a rush to set up triage and rationing protocols that, in some cases, were inconsistent with federal civil rights obligations and also inconsistent with the dignity of the person. And that's a real problem.
0: Lewis, a number of states are considering legalizing assisted suicide. A bill has been introduced here in Minnesota to do just that. It seems to me that that assisted suicide and euthanasia are the logical endpoint of the throwaway culture. How might those exacerbate some of the problems you've been talking about uh, with regard to COVID or what it's exposed? And then even getting back to other issues like racial disparities in healthcare, playing it out down the road. What legalizing assisted suicide and making that a normative course of health care? Uh, what do you what do you see the long-term effects of that being
2: I, i can't emphasize enough we have seen a culture of life over the last effectively 12 months where tens of thousands of first responders medical doctors nurses physicians assistants other medical professionals risk their lives for their patients usually not probably not knowing their patients And maybe never seeing them again because the patient hopefully will get better and move on. And so the heroism and the self-sacrifice and the witness to life that tens of thousands of medical professionals, first responders showed in the United States over the last 12 months has been extraordinary and something that we haven't seen in at least 100 years. And it has to be celebrated and supported. Sure. And it's important also to say that the culture of death isn't everywhere. And in, 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 in so many of these places across the country where we saw first responders and medical professionals risk their lives for their patients, we saw the culture of life. And so that needs to be celebrated. Indeed. At the same time as we have that beautiful witness over the last 12 months, we also have this ongoing march of too much of our healthcare system and too much of our culture, our popular culture, saying that if you are not productive, if you are not effective, if you do not have what we deem to be sufficient quality of life, that your life is just not as important. That your life just does not equate as much to someone who's healthier and more productive. Uh, We see that with regard to the unborn. We see that with regard to persons with disabilities that experience bias, discrimination, unjust denial of care. We see that to people that are elderly and aged who experience unjust denial of care and bias. We've seen that a bit in some of the triage protocols during COVID. And then we see that too, as you point out, I think Jason, with regard to the ongoing push for physician assisted suicide and a mindset of euthanasia in too much of our healthcare system and in our bioethics that if we're not careful can lead to a culture of death. And it's important to say this too, when this happens, who does it most negatively impact when we have a culture of death when we have a throwaway culture when we have an abortive mindset to people that are most vulnerable uh within our society and particularly within our healthcare system it hits hardest those that are most vulnerable it hits hardest those who are materially impoverished it hits hardest particularly communities of color that have been historically marginalized and don't have the same access and resources to advocate for their life and their health. That's what happens. That's why there's a disproportionate number of unborn African-American children who are aborted. That's why too often when it comes to issues around respecting dignity and protecting dignity of life towards the end of life, we see that so often this impacts African-American families. It impacts Hispanic Chicano Latino and Hispanic families, this impacts poor white families in a way that it doesn't impact the rest of the culture. And that's a problem. And it's a justice issue. It's an issue of the right to life of these patients who are more vulnerable. It's an issue of social justice. And that's why we see this need to what I'm calling a, a need for a rebirth of civil rights across American society, particularly in health care, is what we need. A rebirth of civil rights, beginning with the unborn, which have to be our preeminent priority, giving the devastating impact that abortion has on so many unborn lives and their mothers and their fathers, but also moving into those of us who are born, those of us who are most vulnerable, those of us who are disabled, those of us who are economically disadvantaged, and those of us who are vulnerable to our dignity, our rights, and our health being violated in the healthcare system. We need a new birth of civil rights to protect those who are weak and those who are vulnerable, and not less. If someone's physically weak It doesn't mean that they're less valuable. That's the whole point. They're just as valuable. And so in our law, in our bioethics, in our health policy, we need to do a better job of defending and protecting those lives from womb to tomb.
0: Lewis, you've said that really well. Protecting the fake right to end your life with the assistance of a physician threatens the actual civil rights and access to health care of the rest of us, particularly the poor and marginalized. That's incredibly well said. Lewis, in our our brief time left, can you tell us about your work with Christ Medicus, the mission of that organization, and what are some of the concrete things you're working on right now?
2: The mission of the Christ Medicus Foundation is to share the love of Jesus Christ in healthcare, and to ensure and to make visible and to make concrete the love of God in the experience and in the care that a person or a patient receives— and ensure that they experience the love of God, body, mind, and soul. Integrated Catholic health care means that we treat and minister and seek to heal the body, the mind, the emotions, and to treat, heal, and minister to the soul. And we do that in three ways. First, we defend and seek to promote the right of medical conscience and religious freedom in health care. So much of human advancement in our country and particularly in healthcare has come from the moral and religious conviction that we as an individual, that we as a community, that we as a society, that we as doctors, nurses, healthcare policy folks have an obligation to love and to serve the sick. That's where even the concept of public health comes from. We have a moral or religious or ethical conviction that we have to love and serve the poor, the sick, the suffering, the dying. And so protecting that right is absolutely vital to a culture of life in America and to ensuring the dignity of all American citizens within our society. That's our number one objective. Our second objective is to offer pro-life options in the marketplace through our healthcare sharing option, CMF Curo, which has several thousand individuals within the United States and particularly in 45 states. Uh, We have a few thousand individuals within our health-sharing option, and we're blessed to partner with a wonderful larger Christian ministry, Samaritan Ministries International. And we also provide strategic advice to pro-life medical centers that are providing excellent medical care for those that may be abortion-minded, to those that may be struggling to find care, but also to those that are very well-off but seeking to have integrated Catholic health care, integrated pro-life health care, and that also want to in going to a particular medical center where their moral and religious convictions are respected also help support the care of those that may not be otherwise able to afford it. So that's that's really our mission to share the love of God in health care, defending the right of medical professionals and healthcare providers to practice their care consistent with their faith, consistent with their moral and religious convictions. To offer Pro life options in the United States for people to actually provide for their care, and particularly do that through CMS CURO, our health sharing option, our health care ministry. And we also do that through providing strategic advice to pro life primary care centers with a special heart for Catholic primary care centers. So it's a gift to be able to do this work, and, and we think it's extraordinarily important, particularly in this time.
0: Wonderful. That sounds amazing. Lewis, where can people go to find more about Christ Medicus Foundation and the good work that you're doing?
2: Sure. You can go to ChristMedicus.org. ChristMedicus.org. C H R I S T M E D I C U S.org.
0: Wonderful. Lewis Brown, you've been a really enlightening guest to help us look at healthcare and the challenges from a lot of different angles. God bless you and your work, and thanks for joining the Bridge Builder today.
2: Thank you so much, Jason.
0: And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to the Bridge Briller, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag?
1: Today's question came from Julia, who says she is an avid listener. She emailed us to ask for further information on church teaching with regard to marijuana. She asked if we could clarify the church's position on decriminalization of marijuana and the use of medical marijuana. She also wants to know, should Catholics advocate for decriminalization because of the impact, per se, on families? And separately, is medical marijuana permissible for use in certain diseases where it's shown to be beneficial?
0: That's an excellent question because it gets to the complex nature of the question. As a general rule, people should not use recreational marijuana for moral reasons, most notably because it's harmful and generally doesn't provide medical benefits. And at the same time, we shouldn't legalize its recreational use because of the broader impacts on society. And I'd encourage people to follow our work at mncatholic.org to hear more about why that is our position. The Minnesota Catholic Conference did not take a position when medical marijuana was legalized a few years ago precisely because the use of marijuana for medicinal purposes is a medical judgment. We don't have any particular expertise in that area. I would note that the American Cancer Society doesn't agree that medical marijuana is a useful thing but you have a lot of stories from individuals and people who believe and profess that it provides some use to them so we stay out of that particular judgment but we do oppose the legalization of recreational marijuana what we do know is that the problems created by the illegal dimension of marijuana has created problems for many with law enforcement and the question is how much criminal penalties Should there be for marijuana use? And that is a legitimate question that we need to have more discussions about as a society. Generally speaking, people aren't going to jail for small possession crimes of marijuana, but there is the contact with law enforcement. How much should marijuana be decriminalized? And by decriminalization, we don't necessarily mean there's no penalties. You can have civil penalties or fines, but do we want to put people into the criminal justice system precisely because they possess marijuana? Dealing is a totally different ball of wax, and people who are dealing marijuana on an active basis, particularly in large amounts, no question, that should still be criminal. And there should be penalties for that. But when it comes to small possession crimes, is putting people through the criminal justice system, creating encounters of many, especially the poor and the vulnerable, with the criminal justice system, is that a productive thing to do? And we're open to conversation about rethinking that and doing it better than has been done in the past, particularly because of its impacts on racial minorities as well.
1: Great. Thank you, Jason. And before we wrap up this week's episode, we want to leave our listeners with some practical ways that they could start Laying those bricks to build the bridge between faith and public life. What do you have in this week's Bricklayer segment?
0: Well, we talked with Lewis Brown earlier about civil rights issues, and educational choice is an incredible civil rights issue in the sense that many people, whether they're impoverished, whether they are persons of color, are trapped in public schools that aren't serving their needs. Our fundamental position is that educational dollars should follow students, not be funneled into systems that aren't serving kids well and operate in a cookie-cutter fashion. We need dollars following students, and that's why we support school choice. You can certainly be engaged with the Minnesota Catholic Conference and our Catholic Advocacy Network to see what we're doing in the public square and at the Capitol working for school choice. There's some exciting legislation uh, being promoted this year, especially by the, in the Senate, educational savings accounts, tuition tax credits, a lot of good things and a lot of great discussions around school choice this year, and people can follow those through MCC. But also, we have a partner organization, Opportunity for All Kids. That website's oakmn.org. Again, oakmn.org if you want to be really up to date about what's going on and more opportunities to advocate for school choice. Become a member of Oak's Advocacy Network, get engaged through Oak, and be on the front end of the school choice movement in Minnesota. Again, that website is oakmn.org. That's all the time we have for today. Listeners, let us know what you thought of today's episode. Share your ideas for the Bricklayer segment and send us your questions for the mailbag. You can leave us a comment on the podcast episode or connect with us on social media or email us at show at mncatholic.org. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Sapiniak of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening. Have a blessed day.